Discussing world-changing ideas through real conversations. Exploring the potential of technology to solve the most critical challenges facing business, people, and the planet. Coming up... I think people have a preconceived notion of rural America, and I think they have a preconceived notion of broadband and the state of broadband in rural America. I think the future is bright. I think that the role that my companies, the NTCA rural broadband providers play, is to not just make rural America survive. It is to give rural America the tools to thrive. This is the Real Conversations podcast by Nokia. Here is Michael Hainsworth. Shirley Bloomfield is as comfortable in a cornrow as she is testifying on Capitol Hill. The CEO of the NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, representing 850 small and family-run providers, is helping to close the digital divide. She works to develop public-private partnerships that ensure farmers participate in the fourth industrial revolution, and rural school children have all the high-tech benefits bestowed upon their urban counterparts. Her passion for the topic grew out of the rich soil of the Midwest. It's actually kind of a long, tortured journey since I actually had a second major in college as an urban studies major, which may sound like it's contradictory, but at the end of the day, it's all about studying You know where communities develop, how they develop, what are the incentives and, and support net mechanisms for people who actually live there? So that was part of my background before working on Capitol Hill. But honestly, it was somewhat serendipitous. And um, once I dipped my toe into working with the rural community, the passion these people have for where they serve, who they serve, the fact that the work they do every day makes a difference, made it very easy to, to grasp becoming a, a rural advocate and with my Wisconsin roots, it wasn't really very difficult to do. So then what would you describe as the current state of the digital divide in rural America? So I honestly think there are two different sectors to look at when people talk about the digital divide. There is a rural America that is served by NTCA members where I know I can be a little bit partial. But when I see the statistics from our latest broadband survey that show that 80% of their customers have access to fiber to the home technology... That is supremely um, robust and developed. Then I think we have to look at the portions of rural America where um, they have been served traditionally by larger carriers who have a very legitimate financial incentive to provide um, more of their newer investments in those markets where they get a greater return. So I think you, you, you really see kind of a rural-rural divide, essentially. So I, I think it's one thing to kind of sector out that all rural is not the same and the service they receive is not the same. Um, but I do think we have to be very honest. And I think that the fact that NT, um, NTIA is now producing and working with these maps that the FCC has, has come up with, that we've got a lot of Americans who are simply not connected. And we've got a lot of Americans in this country who don't have services that are really adequate for for our, our economy today. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done. People will throw out different numbers. I'm not going to get into that game. We do know there's a lot of parts of this country that are unserved and underserved. And that is one of the reasons why I think policymakers have been so willing to make a huge investment. What does the digital divide mean to you? What's the definition in your books? So the digital divide to me um, really means a, a couple of things. I think people tend to kind of focus immediately in on Who's served? Who's not served? Who has broadband? Who doesn't have broadband? Who's watching a spinning wheel and who doesn't? 
But I think it also means um, who, which communities are connected, which groups of populations are we leaving behind? And um, there's different populations that I think are going to have different needs in terms of finding that connectivity. So I, I think I would say that that is one thing. The other becomes an affordability issue. You know, are we ensuring that people can actually afford the service, even if we can provide the service? And the last part I would say to that is education. Um, when I think about digital digital equity and inclusion, a lot of that is about, okay, we may have a robust broadband network out into this community, um, overcoming all of these different geographical challenges or cost challenges. But if at the end of the day, we're not taking the time and the resources to actually educate people how to get online, to have them realize that it is more than fast email. And um, I think we learned a lot of those lessons during COVID. But so to me, the digital divide is not only the network, but it is also ensuring that we make sure that all people can find a way and all Americans have access to this technology and how to use it. Tell me about that all people component to it, because as you point out, the digital divide isn't just geographical. It's not just financial. How is the NTCA encouraging more women to get involved with digital skills? It's that education component, I suppose. Education is so important. And I think it's that classic, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think, you know, when we think about the high tech fields um, and we think about, quite frankly, the fact that there are some serious workforce challenges and particularly in a rural community. You know, because sometimes unless you've got that job hook, that career hook, that long term path, some of your best and brightest um, will leave. They'll go off to college and and not return. So, you know, we think about um, it's going to take all of those different talents and all of those different voices around the table. And we all know that the more diverse the voices around the table, the better the performance of an organization. So at NTCA, we've really been focused a lot on women in telecom. We have a very formal initiative where we bring women from all parts of um, where they may be residing within their companies, whether they are the CEO, where they are a new customer service rep, whether they are fiber splicer. We even have some women who are line line women um, out there doing uh, doing some of the more dangerous outdoor plant kind of work. But, but getting them together to share ideas about how women can support one another in this industry, you know, how... We can continue to grow that sector, um, giving mentorships and uh, doing different leadership developments. And again, that idea that if rural broadband companies can actually tap half of the gender talent that is out there, I think we see an even more robust future. I guess that's part of the goal of the annual Smart Rural Community Live conference you host. You know, part of the the Smart Rural community live conference that we do host is really focused on how do we build the biggest tent possible? How do we build a tent that not only addresses, you know, workforce needs of the future, but probably a little bit more interestingly in my book, it is really about how do we gather everybody who is interested in the future of rural America and in creating these smart communities. And by that, it is a community that has a great deal of fiber connectivity that has more than half their population actually um, taking uh, broadband services and how they are engaging on the community level, um, whether they are working with public officials, their economic developers, um, their local leadership to think about job creation, to be thinking about public safety initiatives, to be thinking about smart agriculture, healthcare, education, all of these, all of these services that will help drive um, a robust rural America. So it's, 
It's trying to get everybody to think beyond the network and think about what do you do with that network and how do you get your community engaged with the network? So the fun thing that I think about that is not just, it's not just about broadband providers. We have community leaders who are coming. They get to come for free when they come with with their own um, folks that are participating. Um, but And then we have application developers, um, people who are actually saying, here's some cool things that we can do with this technology. And we are most appreciative for Nokia being such a key player and, and helping to sponsor this discussion, being a part of the discussion and sharing some of your insights about what technology can actually bring to ensure that there's economic vitality. Tell me about the evolution of that conference. How has it grown over the course of the last few years into something that's new? I can imagine the very first one bears very little resemblance to the most recent. Well, we all have to keep evolving, Michael. That is really important. Um, You know, the fun thing about um, this year, you know, last year we were really just trying, people, you know, were kind of thinking it felt like an elephant and, and and the blind men, like everybody touching it kind of saw what they wanted to see out of it. Um, This year, what we've really kind of honed in on is making sure that there is engagement. So when we have local mayors and local economic developers and we have folks who are taught, you know, coming to us from um, we have the White House who will be joining us talking about their vision for the future of rural America. NTIA, the the individual who actually liaisons between states and local governments. So, so we are putting folks around uh, tables. And one of the things we are doing this year that I think will be very exciting is we're really going to focus on, on discussion, engagement. I think of it more of a summit, a workshop. You know, what are the takeaways? Okay, what are the economic developers saying they need to see from broadband providers? Um, what do the app developers need to see? How, how do we really take smart ag from a couple of really cool case studies to... Um, to creating platforms for communities to take back. So I think what we have seen the evolution of is what are the take backs? A little bit more focused about, okay, the room discussion is very cool. We're all very excited. But this year, we really want to take things back home. We really want folks to be carrying back out to all of the states they are coming from to say, here's some things we can all do. Um, Collaboration is really important. And we really focus a lot on you know sharing ideas and sharing thoughts. As a highly regulated industry, what are the main roadblocks to closing this digital divide? So I, I think one of the things that people forget about when we think about broadband deployment is there's a lot of excitement right now about building networks. There's a lot of federal funding coming out. There is state funding. There's a lot of different initiatives, whether we're talking about bead money or treasury money or USDA reconnect money. But there's not as much focus on how we sustain these networks. It's one thing to build them. And that is important. That's job number one. But if we look back as a country in five years and say we didn't do enough um, supporting, for example, the Universal Service Fund to actually ensure that these networks are sustainable and they are affordable and we can actually your infrastructure costs the same as it does in a Washington, D.C. area. You just have a lot fewer people that you're spreading the cost among. So I think thinking beyond building the network, I I think one of the things we think a lot about is how we sustain that network and how we educate policymakers that that is a really important part of the equation because nobody wants to look back and say, yeah, for five years we had some great networks out there and now we're not able to sustain those. So then if investments in bridging the digital divide need to be made with the future in mind, how do you future-proof a deployment? 
Oh, we are extraordinarily bullish about ensuring um, that fiber technology is prioritized. And I know sometimes people will say, well, your guys have the longest hauls and your your areas are the toughest to serve. It's the stretches between, you know, you may have three consumers per mile of facility, um, but we think it is the smartest investment. It is that it is that adage that, you know, you've only got one chance to do it right the first time. You know, we look at the appetite that American consumers have for bandwidth. It is growing exponentially. And I think you know that as well as anybody. Um, so how do we make sure that we we're, we're not trying to catch up in a few years? So we really think fiber is the way to go. We think, obviously, it's going to take every tool in the toolkit. But the other thing about fiber that sometimes folks forget about is that if you are in rural America, a big portion of your cost becomes the OPEX. CAPEX is one thing. The OPEX, the ability to maintain those networks, is pretty pricey. Fiber has a much lower OPEX. It means a lot low, you know, fewer truck rolls that you are running through. And when I say truck rolls, it's not 20 minutes down the road. In a lot of cases, it's a four or five hour drive to get out to where that consumer premise might be having an issue. So, so we continue to think it's important. We're delighted that policymakers have actually made it a priority. Um, I know there's a lot of industries that are kind of pushing against that. Um, but I do think that, again, different situations will have different needs. But if my folks in Montana and North Dakota um, can have robust broadband service with fiber technology, I think you can do it almost anywhere. The NTCA has testified that each community is unique and that the successful deployment of broadband in rural America is not a singular model of identical blocks. So what are some of the examples of the unique needs of different communities? Oh, so let's start with Alaska, right? I mean, so you know, <laughs> I mean, we, we can we can start with the extreme. We have a number of companies up in Alaska. Um, very, very different. You know, obviously not only the topography, but what you find in Alaska is you've got very dense villages. So their consumers per mile of facility is actually far greater than a lot of rural areas. But then carrying that traffic across the tundra um, is a really different, um, a really different source of kind of building a network. You also have to have a lot of fiber under underwater fiber connectivity to to bring your traffic into the mainland. So thinking about some of those middle mile pieces is really different. You know, and and everything from, you know, how do you cover a state like Colorado? You know, what kind of technologies can be used? And I would even say, you know, a lot of it is around building seasons. You're in North Dakota and and South Dakota, your ability to put plant in the ground um or plant anywhere is really limited to a nice, healthy five or six months, seven if you're lucky. Um, so really being kind of um, really kind of a, a, a tied to those rhythms of nature is also really important to consider. And again, so much of it is density. So much of it is um, what that community's needs are. You know, you may have a big agriculture community. Well, they're going to have, you know, a certain kind of need. You may have another that is um, having the ability to uh, recruit a lot of um, new factory deployments. That's going to take another kind of need. So thinking through each of those needs, it's it's the classic, you know, there is no one size fits all. And here at NTCA with our 850 community-based providers, 
we know probably better than anybody that uh, you don't put anybody in a box and think that it's you're going to get one solution. After this podcast, learn more about this and other insightful topics by going to nokia.com slash thought leadership. There you'll find additional information linked to today's podcast. So how do we balance the role of government and enterprise in bringing broadband to rural areas? Well, I think the government has a really important role to play. And I think, you know, my carriers, you know, you mentioned earlier the highly regulated industry. My companies traditionally started off as telephone companies. They had carrier of last resort obligations. They knew what it meant that they had to serve everybody down the line. Regardless, they weren't cherry picking. They weren't saying, I just want to take this cluster because... It's a high density and I'm going to get a high return. They have that mentality. But but part of that comes from the fact that they were regulated industries and that they had obligations. And with those obligations, uh, they also had access to things like the Universal Service Fund, the ability to borrow uh, from RUS to actually, who's one of their largest bankers, to build their networks. So the government has actually always been a very key player. Now you layer in post, you know, the Infrastructure Act and investments that are coming out, the Treasury money that is coming out, the additional reconnect money that is coming out. Government as a the ability to fund a lot of this is important. But what comes with um, that funding becomes obligations, right? You can't nobody should ever expect that the government is going to put a hundred billion dollars into infrastructure and say, all right, you're all on your own. You figure it out. I hope you do a good job. There's going to be oversight, as there should. There's going to be obligations and the need to prove that you have actually used those resources to do what you said you were going to do. And I think um, when we talk about affordability, the government um, actually managing the ACP program, which is the affordability program, is also going to be very important because in rural communities, ensuring that those low-income consumers are able to connect in an affordable way is also going to be a key part of the component. So then what does an effective public-private partnership look like that closes that digital divide? It's a lot of conversations. Um, and so it is It is really a lot of conversations. And that is where I think watching be, being implemented is going to be fascinating because we are doing an unprecedented way of flowing this money down. We are having 50 states come up with 50 different plans that will distribute their allocations that um, will be released shortly in in 50 different ways. So, you know, so those conversations between providers, local community leaders, state leaders, all is going to be very critical. So I think you're going to have state governments who have never really had a role to play in broadband deployment have to come up to speed very, very quickly. Now, many of them have created state broadband offices, so that has given them a good start. But even though state broadband offices um, are traditionally housed in an economic development or under the governor's office, again, these are not people who have a long, rich history traditionally in building broadband networks. So again, those conversations about what does a community need? You know, where is the service needed to be deployed? What is the state's role in doing it is going to be very important. They're holding stakeholder discussions all across their states. And all I can say is whether you are a broadband provider, you are a vendor in this community, you are a concerned citizen, go to the tables, look to find when those discussions are taking place. I think they're going to be taking place for months to come. 
um, all those voices are going to be really critical to ensure that that public-private partnership is really effective. In those conversations, do state and federal governments understand that today's um, farmers are are very high-tech and that they need digital broadband for more than just Netflix and video games? You know, I think when I think about what broadband can really fuel in rural America, smart ag, precision ag is at the top of that list. You know, when we think about things like, um, you know, just the amount of, of, of money, the amount of productivity that needs to be increased. So that's a, a long way to say, no, I don't actually think policymakers have the best understanding of this. And I think there's a lot of work that the industry has to do, that the agriculture industry has to do to make sure we connect more dots. You know, for example, we've had folks who've been sitting on the working group over at the FCC's um, Precision Ag Task Force for a while. I feel like it's an intellectual exercise. I think there's some great discussions around the table. I'm not sure I see those discussions filtered down to state and local policymakers. But the, sometimes the best way to show this, and we've done this with FCC commissioners, get them in the field, show them, put them on a tractor, have them actually see how automated this this arena is today and why it is so critically important and and how much more productivity we can we can create smart cattle devices um let them see what it means to bovine health when you actually have some of the ability to to do the 24 7 um sensor monitoring so i think there's exciting developments this is one area where i would say hands-on let them see it let them feel it let them touch it and let them understand that yes Farming has to move beyond uh, just fast email. Get them in the field, literally. Get them in the field. (laughs) We actually have a saying when we talk about fiber to the home. My folks in Iowa basically uh, recoined it as, um, you know, we call it FTTH. They call it fiber to the hog. Ah, very nice. Uh, What though of healthcare and education in rural communities, they often underpin a thriving workforce and they drive an economy. Absolutely, because if you don't have health care, you're, you're not attracting people to move to your community. That's one of the first things people look at. I've got my kids. Do I want to move back there? Is the education um, you know, sufficient? Are they going to have access to resources? And can I get health care? You also tend to have an aging population in rural America. So the need and access to health care is significant. I think we made some really interesting, great strides during COVID. Um, we, for example, run our own group health trust. We have tens of thousands of lives that are covered by it. And we have a teledoc program. Watching the number spike of people actually utilizing a telehealth initiative and kind of getting over the whole like, yes, this can work. Um, you know, it was it was gratifying to see, particularly because in rural areas, you know, we're seeing rural hospitals are closing by exponential numbers and rural health clinics are consolidating and the incentives to attract new young doctors to these communities are a lot more limited than they used to be. So again, um, we think that's really important for people to see what they can do. But again, it's another, you almost need to touch it and to see it and showing people and doing demonstrations about what, what does health monitoring mean? How can you, how can you treat diabetes in a rural community without somebody having to drive um, long distances. And I will say, particularly during COVID and in a rural community, we've seen a real uptick in the use of using um, telemedicine and different healthcare initiatives utilizing broadband in the mental health arena. And in part because small communities 
A lot of folks don't want their truck being seen outside of the the local mental health clinic. The ability to get that care that you need, utilizing your iPad from the living room of your home, utilizing your broadband connection, it's huge. And I think that um, we're only going to see that uh, further further utilized as we as we move forward. What's an important but under-discussed hurdle that your 850 independent telecommunications companies experience when it comes to bridging that digital divide? How do you find the workers? We've got this money flowing in. We've got support of policymakers. We are going to have unprecedented amount of network deployment. But if you can't find the workforce to actually build these networks, then you really can't move the ball. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we also tend to have short build seasons in certain parts of the country. So how do you find that workforce that is willing to be trained? Um, And we think about this a lot, actually. We were part of the White House uh, Talent Pipeline Challenge. We continue to work with them um, in terms of different initiatives. We have partnered with Northwood Technical College in Wisconsin to create um, a partnership on a vibrant Uh, a training program that can also be done online and with some virtual reality training. Very excited about kind of uh, doing a badging, which is kind of apprenticeship light because people just don't have the time to put people through a full apprenticeship program. How do we get fiber splicers out there? How do we get installers ready to hit the ground? So I would say, you know, workforce and workforce in a rural community, it's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that we're thinking about. We're also thinking, you know, when we think about that, we also think about how do you keep your homegrown talent? How do you keep your young people? So we are making a huge push, um, thanks to the leadership of a number of our member companies in the esports arena, um, sponsoring these esport teams and watching these companies take these kids who are smart and they're technology oriented to begin with and bring them in as interns and then bring them in as their future IT staff and watch that continue to grow. has been very, very exciting. So that is something we're going to put a lot of emphasis on. And when we continue to host these smart rural community live discussions, that esports, that e-gaming, that recruiting and growing your own workforce will be a big part of the discussion as well. So Shirley, if there was one key takeaway for the listener of our conversation today, what would you like it to be? I think people have a preconceived notion of rural America, and I think they have a preconceived notion of broadband and the state of broadband in rural America. I think the future is bright. I think that um, the role that my companies, the NTCA rural broadband providers play, is to not just make rural America survive. It is to give rural America the tools to thrive. And I think that is what broadband drives. And that is why we are very excited about the days to come. Building a future that's productive, sustainable, and inclusive in a world that acts together. Discover how by visiting nokia.com slash thought leadership.